0: Good morning. I was telling OJ, I was realizing, arriving here this morning, that I had been here but had not had an opportunity to worship with you uh, before. All the years I've thanked God for you and prayed for you, Um, it's been uh, really a sweet privilege to spend the morning here with you today. I mentioned we're going through this passage in the middle of the parables of the kingdom. Um, And let's just open up by reading that portion. It's in Matthew. You can follow along in your bulletins. Chapter 13, verses 46 44-46 44-46 through, 44 through 46. It says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field when a man found it he hid it again went and sold everything he had and bought that field again he says as if to repeat the point the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls so when he finds one of great value he goes and sells everything and buys that pearl The passage describing something lost like a treasure in a field is not such a foreign concept for the audience when Jesus is using this example. Um, In fact, um, it's more likely that someone lost that treasure, having buried it in the absence of uh, bank accounts or even mattresses to stuff money in. That was something people did. So it wasn't that rare to find one. And so this is a treasure that has been lost um, and has now been found. I was sitting in the living room thinking about my time with you and my son walked over and sort of plopped on the sofa next to me and we got to talking and I asked him, you know, what's the biggest thing you've ever lost? And he said, my family. And I said, really? He was talking about the time he got lost uh, while he was with his family at Universal Studios. My uh, sister in law and her kids, who my kids adore, uh, and my wife and daughter and Chris were at the theme parks. They were actually at Universal City Walk on this day. And uh, his aunt suggested that the kids all stand by this car, some hot rod or something that was there. And he, she wanted to take pictures of all the kids together. And uh, Christopher dashes to take the picture, arrives at the car, turns around, only to find that his 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 older sister and cousins didn't think the idea was that cool, it never went. And so the whole group has moved on now, he can't see any of them, and he's realizing now that he's lost, and um, he found an adult, got help by the time uh, authority showed up. uh, Giselle, my wife, had found him, and he was okay, I asked him how he felt, and he described how he was scared. About 10 minutes had gone by, he started to cry a little bit, but then when he saw mom, he was happy and excited. Uh, And it was interesting to think about the moment before he realized he was lost. (laughs) when there was hope and anticipation for something positive for a sweet moment, just posing for a picture with his sister and cousins. Uh, But he did not yet know that he was about to be very sad, that he was about to discover he was lost. It's not that hard to be lost and not know it. Um, I can tell you, I was once leaving a meeting, uh, and uh, before I exited this building and headed to my car, I realized I needed to go. So I go to find a restroom. I quickly find one, dash in, and walk in, and it does strike me. At the corner of my eye, I see a vase with some flowers. I thought that was a little odd, but I went to use the bathroom, and there's no stalls. Just like, you know, there's toilets for everybody, and I'm like, okay, no urinals. So I use the uh, toilet. I walk out. I'm washing my hands, and I'm about to leave when a woman walks into the the restroom. Eyes wide open as saucers looking at me like, what are you doing here? The funny thing is for a second, I'm looking at her like, what are you doing here? Because I'm convinced I'm in the right place. And sometimes we can be lost and just not know it. Um, And in life, that's a common feeling. That's often you feel like you've just walked into the middle of a story or a movie and you're still trying to figure out who's the good guy and the bad guy and what's really happening here. We did that quite literally once. We walked in late a few years ago to... um, the opening uh, week of Guardians of the Galaxy. And by the time we got the kids to uh, sitters and made our ways to the theater, we had not only missed the trailers, but the first five or 10 minutes of the backstory of the main character of the film. So I spent most of the movie wondering how this guy on the far reaches of the galaxy flying around in futuristic spaceships is listening to a mixtape on a cassette, Uh, not understanding the period that he's from. But uh, that idea of not knowing that you're lost and being in the middle of the story, not understanding exactly who all the characters are can make you miss even the most important parts of the story. And the treasures that are there within and being able to enjoy it. My wife is sitting next to me the whole time. And she's only here for a superheroes movie. Because I said yes to the last three chick flicks uh, that she suggested. And really cares little for the Avengers franchise. had watched maybe the Captain America movie. And so halfway through she leans over and she goes, so when is Captain America coming out? She's like so confused because there's no familiar characters in this film. And that idea of finding ourselves in the middle of something and trying to make sense of it is one I'd like to highlight as Christ is here in this parable, uh, trying to unveil where he stands in the middle of something with his disciples. We're in the book of Matthew, and Matthew has done a great job of trying to articulate his experiences following Christ as a disciple. It's a few years since uh, the Lord has gone home, and he is now trying to communicate to a Jewish audience, writing this book, the life and events of Christ. Uh, By this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has uh, been baptized, he's announced his ministry, he's begun preaching the good news of the kingdom, declaring he is here to seek and save the lost. Uh, He's already preached the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he's commissioned his disciples, they've seen amazing, wondrous things happen. And by the time he's getting to the parables of the kingdom, we're about midpoint. And there's a, a mixed bag of reactions among those in the audience that have been listening to Jesus. His own family, is jury's kind of out in their mind. They don't understand exactly what's up with their older brother. They've publicly made comments questioning uh, his ministry. Uh, John the Baptist himself is asking literally, are you really the guy that we're waiting for? Um And there's everything in between. In fact, on the polar opposite extremes, you've got a couple of characters that are wrestling with what Jesus represents and what is it they're hearing as he explains these parables. We're in the middle of his ministry, in the middle of a series of teachings about the parables. And by now, Jesus who woke up that morning to teach meets the crowds, walks out to the shore and onto a boat so that he could speak to the whole audience from a good distance where they can hear him. But by verses 44 and 46, he has now gotten off the boat, walking onto the shore, back inside the house. The disciples who have already been scratching their head for a while earlier in verse 11 had asked him like, why do you always teach in parables? Why don't you just plainly explain to people what you're talking about? And his answer to them is like, it is given unto you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but not unto them. In fact, to those who have more will be given and those who do not have what they have will be taken away. And if there's ever been like a passage in scripture that just I wrestle with every time I run into it, it's that one. It just sounds downright unfair. But here he is now giving them special privilege, a unique insight into what he's talking about. So they're in the house. They ask first about the parable of the weeds. What does that really mean? He's explained it. You've heard is that we've walked through that. But in the middle of an explanation, in the middle of a parable, He drops this couplet, these two mirror parables meant to make the same point very intentionally as a way of trying to describe the mystery in the middle. So let's listen to them again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and in his joy went and sold everything he had and bought that field. Again, As if to repeat the point, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. When he finds one of great value, he goes away and sells everything he has and buys that pearl. There are several ways we can try to understand this parable and what he's trying to communicate to us. One is to ask ourselves, where where am I in the story? To apply it to my life, who am I in the story? What we typically think of this is uh, from the lens of seeing ourselves as the man who's walking through the field and stumbles upon this treasure, this amazing treasure, so valuable, so glorious, so priceless, that happily would we exchange everything we have, have worked hard for, have earned and saved and treasured, because we estimate that the appreciative value of that treasure is so much greater than my appreciation for everything that I have that I would quickly make the exchange. And that, that notion has been an inspiration for many of us in this room. I know for me, the idea of being able to uh, make decisions that I otherwise would not make because I believe that God's reward is greater than my sacrifice. To uh, be willing to to endure seasons of struggle and strife and an attempt to be obedient and do what God has asked me to do to try to really seek the pleasure of the God who loves me. That idea of sacrifice and duty and obedience in exchange for the kingdom of God. Uh, It's something that I think leads many of us to good works, uh, but sometimes has another side. One uh, group in the audience that has been listening to Jesus has already made their mind up about him. The Pharisees have now been offended so many times over him doing uh, signs and wonders or works in the Sabbath uh, and they've fought with him enough times, they're fed up. By this point in the story, they've already started talking about ending his life but permanently getting rid of this guy. And if you've been going to church for any amount of time, uh, you know the Pharisees are bad guys in the story. They're the ones whose actions lead to the crucifixion of our Lord. But who are these Pharisees exactly? We know by history that they are different from Levites who are born into the ministry of the temple. And they're different from their contemporaries, the Sadducees, who are really aristocrats that have been trained in the law to educate other aristocrats. But the Pharisees are laymen who believe that they can live lives so consecrated to God, that though they are ordinary people, that they can give themselves and devote themselves to serving an almighty God and sharing and teaching the truth of the Torah to everyone. They so believe in the democratizing of God's law that they invent the idea of a synagogue. We don't all have to go to Solomon's temple. There are places we can gather and learn and worship and live in holy community but they have lived so committed to this idea of sanctity and good works in honor of God's law that they're so proud and attached to that. It is really hard to hear Jesus say, everything you have is nothing compared to what I offer. And I kind of get it, honestly. It's not easy to be told that your best efforts are not enough. Um, I uh, have a friend who often challenges me to remember to always mix up our date nights and not do the same thing every time we go on a date night. And so I'm always collecting new ideas for places to go and things to do. If you have any, I'll take them after the service. Uh, And so the other night, I planned a date night where we would go to dinner and afterwards scheduled to go to an escape room. And uh, we signed up to go to this escape room. And I hadn't really thought through the fact that it was only two of us uh, and didn't know that the time for the one that I scheduled was actually the hardest one at that location. But we're working through it, right? And we're we're cracking codes and solving riddles and unlocking locks and doors and feeling pretty smart about ourselves, working pretty hard. It felt like we were there a couple hours, I thought. And I remember just as I'm about to solve the last two clues to open this door that we've been through now a couple. We're now gonna go into this next section when a young girl walks in and says that our time is up. And I'm like, oh, I was so close. I was about to lock this door and crack this whole thing. And she goes, uh, Sir, there's a whole wing in several other rooms you haven't gotten to yet. It's just like stabbing the heart. Like my ego was so deflated. I was feeling so good right before she said those words. And it's, it's, not, it's not easy to hear that even when you try really, 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 really hard, it's not enough. But when we serve to make this exchange out of grit and out of duty, to be obedient a lot of times much like the pharisees it's how we end up being mean religious people think of the most mean religious person you've ever met and they're probably someone who feels they live every day under the weight of a god who is never satisfied Who, no matter how hard they try work pray and serve is always demanding more because what they offer is not enough and so that's how they treat other people There's another problem with this lens for interpreting the passage, and my son actually highlighted this recently at our Herndon campus. The BCL staff was doing a little video uh, to promote a series of teachings or something they were doing, and uh, they asked him about this parable, actually, and how the man who bought exchange for the pearl must have felt, and he said, I think he felt excited, happy, and I... I wasn't going to say this, but isn't he walking around with nothing but a pearl to cover his privates now? <laughs> it's just like in his mind, he's thinking this guy's got rid of everything he has. All he has is a little pearl. Like what is, how's that supposed to work? But he's highlighting something very real, right? That even if we could exchange everything, our everything is still not enough. It's not enough. And the Pharisees would have done good to remember Jeremiah nine twenty three and 24, For it says that the wealthy should not boast in their wealth or their strong, in their strength, or their wise, in their wisdom. But if anyone is to boast, let him boast in that he knows and understands that I am God who enacts kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. And in these things I delight. He does not value the same things we value. There's another way we might look at this passage. Jesus is, remember, he's in the middle of an explanation. So he's already offered some clues. It was earlier in the explanation that he said that the man in the parable is the son of man. He is the man. Should have been a clue the moment we thought we were the man. Jesus is the man. The field is the world. This idea that he is the one who uncovers a treasure and finds it so valuable, he would gladly exchange everything he has, all that he is in return for that great reward, that amazing treasure. And that treasure would be you. You would be the one he values so much. You would be the one, he says, is so amazing and priceless and beautiful to him. He would gladly give it all up for you. Now at the opposite end of the spectrum, for the person hearing this parable that has never heard anyone talk about them that way, the prostitute in that audience. You see, Jesus was nicknamed the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this form of insult was because he hung out with a lot of them. But sinners was sort of the polite term for women of the night. Uh, Or as Victorian women used to describe fallen women in society. Because for tax collectors who were the nouveau rich, making a lot of money in that society, they wanted to be like Roman citizens. And the Roman citizens they knew were Roman soldiers for whom it was outlawed to abuse or marry women while they were deployed. And so wherever they went, uh, they were however allowed to engage with the trade of prostitution. It was legalized and licensed in the Roman empire and very, very common. So when you got invited to dinner, you were offered a meal and some live entertainment as common practice. So when Jesus is going to these dinners, he is surrounded by these sinners, but he does not see them as the scum of the society they're in, in the way that they're treated. He sees them as beautiful daughters, as children that he loves in all their dignity and beauty and preciousness as God has made them and values them so. And sometimes we may not be able to believe it, get our mind and our heart to get there, but he looks at you and he says, I love you so much. You are the treasure for which he exchanges everything without a second thought. You're the one he sings over at night while you sleep. You're the one he rejoices over in gladness and boasts of having you as his. And you open your eyes in the morning, whether your first thoughts are holy or not. He is so excited to have another day with you. Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says that he has called you apart from all the nations in the world as a holy people to be his prized possession, his treasure. You are his treasure. Some years ago, my sister, um, the youngest one, I'm the oldest of four, so number two um, had her firstborn. As soon as I got the news, I rushed to the hospital and I was so happy to be there to celebrate with them. No one else had arrived yet. So it was just her husband, her and me. Uh, and so we're talking about how faithful God has been, how beautiful this baby is, how perfect he is. His head maybe was a little large, but he was a beautiful baby. And so um, as we're thanking the Lord there, she gets a little coaching on sort of breastfeeding, Latches just a mom, starts breastfeeding. We're uh, talking just about how happy we are and Soon, everybody else is gonna show up. And 10 minutes into the conversation, my sister looks at the baby and he's blue. He's somehow choked and stopped breathing. Um, I dash out to yell at the nurses at the nurse's station to get somebody there. It takes a few seconds while one comes in to realize how serious what I'm saying is, then gets a whole crew of them. And in the seconds that ensued, that felt like many, many minutes, um, I look back and my brother-in-law is on his knees. Hecking God, please don't do this. And the the moment of desperation and the fear the three of us felt, we would have gladly given everything up to have that boy back. They worked on him and it felt like hours, I'm sure was seconds. um, Quickly got him breathing again, got him back in her arms. um, And he was fine minutes later. Uh, That boy is 18 years old today. (laughs) I still have trouble telling that story. Uh, Every time he ran too fast or stumbled on something or somebody hit him, like the three of us, only the three of us had this extra sensitivity about him, this extra sense of wanting to protect him. And for a long time, I would look back at that and realize the desperation we felt and the attachment it created and think about the fact that we should long for God to be our hero just that much But I now know that it is God. It is Christ who longed for you just that much. He remembers holding us in the garden, having complete communion with us, nothing to separate us. We were unfaithful and we ran things amok so long is gone, but now he's here and he says, you are mine. I will gladly trade everything for you. For the disciples, the privileged disciples who are getting this sort of peeling back of the veil, this opportunity to understand more deeply what he's talking about. And in verse 11 of the same chapter, he uses the word mystery when he says, to them is given to understand the mysteries. And In that language, mystery doesn't mean a secret. Mystery means something that was a secret but is now being revealed to you. It's the act of revealing something unknown. And this really has so much to do with how we approach God's word. Because all too often, we tend to open it up. Think, if you've been to church for a little bit or you went to Sunday school, you read a story like this or any other, and you assume you know what it means because you've heard it before. The simple truth gets lost on you. Like the parables were lost on those first hearers. Simple quips. Pithy enough for people to kind of gloss over and think they get it when in fact, they were covering up layers and layers of hidden treasure. There are good instructions in here, but this is not just an instruction manual. There's history, but this is not just a history book. There is a need for us to approach it with the humility of one who is lost, looking for directions. Curious, when you read something and it just sounds weird, like what does that mean? You're not supposed to gloss over it because you're a Christian and you should believe it. You're supposed to stop and say, what? Why would they say that? And read forward and read back and try to figure out what is he saying. And in the middle of that moment, he will reveal deeper hidden treasure for you. And as he's doing this with the disciples, they realize the privilege of the revelation that they are receiving. And in that moment, they're charged with being stewards of this great, incredible gift of the knowledge of his love and the special role they play as stewards and recipients of this joy. There's a little phrase hidden in the passage that we read that the man, after having found the treasure, he hid it again. Now he buries it again because there's a law in that time called the law of lifting, which said that if you unearthed a valuable possession on somebody else's property, even if they didn't know it was there, the moment it came out of the ground, it belonged to them. It doesn't belong to you. So this is why he hides it again, goes back, finds the money by selling everything so that he can buy the whole field though all he wants is that treasure. But it says that he does it in his joy. In his joy, he trades everything to buy the whole world because he wants you. And to realize that he would do that, to understand that you are the joy set before him, that drove him to endure the cross, to scorn the suffering, to be sat on the right hand of the Father for the joy set before him in you. We're in interesting times today, and sometimes it's just hard to realize how much we need to be sought out by the one who loves us this much. We can pretend that we're not lost, not only not know, but just choose not to be found. I love that we're doing care communities at Summit and coming around foster families. My first first experience with that was when a dear friend of ours uh, was adopting and asked us to be godparents of the new baby and um, we just were humbled and agreed. And then um, the baby um, had four brothers um, that also needed being adopted and so they adopted all five. And they took these boys in and have raised them and they're just all amazing young men the oldest um, however had a greater recollection of the years of wandering um, with his um, natural parents uh, who were vulnerable in so many ways and uh, by the time he was 16 he decided he didn't want to live under the constraint and rules of the household that he was raised in and that he wanted to live more like the life that he remembered and decided one day to walk out and not come back We prayed and worried and wondered where he was. Eventually found out he was staying in some warehouse and then living in the woods. And I used to office in Lake Eola, right by Lake Eola. And you meet all kinds of folks by Lake Eola. And one day I was walking out for lunch. And who do I see but my godson? He walks up and we start talking. He's telling me where he's staying, that he has a fiance he wants me to meet. And um, we go to lunch a few times. And I remember one lunch in particular, the three of us are... Just eating at the subway downtown and they're telling me the conditions that they're living in and that they're perfectly happy. That This is exactly what they want to do and where they want to be. And I know the warm, clean bed that's waiting for him at home. I know the loving arms of his mother who would so joyfully receive him, his father and his brothers and his family who would celebrate to have him come back. And I have rarely felt more helpless and sitting there over this lunch, knowing there was nothing I could do to change his heart and his mind. And sometimes we just choose to be lost. Sometimes we know better. We're at a time in our country where we're lost. We haven't been here before, really. Uh, some compare it to the early days of this a new nation right after the revolution. George Washington himself was so discouraged by the political infighting and bickering and national leaders acting like they were middle schoolers. And he said he wasn't sure if America would really last long at all. Our civil war Uh, threatened to tear us apart and end us, the civil rights movement of the 60s. All these represent forks in the road for our nation's history. In times like now, some say, we really don't know exactly how we're gonna get out of where we are. But what's encouraging and exciting to me is throughout all of history, The church of Jesus Christ, since its founding, has found a way in the middle of the moments when everything seems up for grabs to focus and galvanize and evolve and change and bring about God's new truth and light in the same message and the 4,000-year-old mission of the people of God just for such a time as this. And so here we are at Summit, and we're in the middle of a moment And we don't know exactly how things are pan out, but we know what he has called us to do. We know that if we will listen and we will lean in, he will uncover hidden treasures for us and the joy that we are to bring to the world that we're living in. My daughter heard that um, my son was uh, telling me this story about getting lost. So she had to one-up him, of course, as a good uh, elder sister. And so she starts telling me about the time she got lost which I heard later was really just a few seconds while they were at a store at Downtown Disney and she, her and her cousin uh, had wandered off and then didn't know where the family was. So they found uh, an employee at the store who in trying to encourage them while he found uh, their parents gave them some Lego 2 movie cards back when that was coming out. And uh, she didn't know what it was, wasn't into the Lego movies yet. And so uh, a few seconds later, she gets reunited with her cousins and the family. And uh, one of her cousins is like, what, you got those? That's not fair. I want those. I want to get lost too. And she says, the best part of getting lost was the prize, (laughs) was the gift that I got. And somehow in admitting that we're lost, that we don't know exactly how to steward the privilege we've been given, He can show us in the middle of that moment exactly how we're to walk with the gift. There's a lot of talk of privilege these days, usually trying to lay on guilt. But let me clarify something for you. Guilt and shame are never the right way to respond to privilege. The only proper response to a privilege is profound gratitude and generosity. It's a realization of how little I deserve and how much he's called me to do with this. And that should be a source of joy for our souls. So next time um, you open God's word, you're wondering what he has for you. Would you open it with the humility of someone who's lost? Asking him to show you the way, no matter how familiar it might sound. And when you're in the middle of a moment and you're wondering where God is, and you don't know how things are going to pan out, and you're not sure if things are going to go well, just know that over and over and over and over and over again, in all of scripture, he keeps saying, I am with you. I'm with you when you don't know what to do. I'm with you when you take charge and make a decision. I'm with you when that decision goes very poorly. I am with you when you think no one is there, and you're wondering why I don't care. I am with you. And as you lean into him in the middle of those moments, he will show you the hidden treasure for the joy that he has found in you and that he wants to share through you. Let's pray.